When I was in college, there was a guy in my dorm who wasn't a Christian. Well, actually, mo most of the guys in my dorm weren't Christians because I didn't go to a Christian college. <laughs> but this particular guy, Bob, had a Christian roommate. And through the influence of that roommate, over a period of many months, Bob made the decision to become a follower of Jesus Christ. A number of us rallied around him, and we had the incredible privilege of driving him over to the coast one night and baptizing him in the bay. And that was really, really cool. So we, we helped Bob get a Bible. We helped him find a local church that he could get involved in. He found a small group that he could join where there could be fellowship and prayer and deeper engagement uh, with the life of faith. And it was so exciting to watch Bob grow and begin to flourish. And as God's Spirit worked in his life, here's what we saw. We saw Bob increasingly learn to trust God more than he trusted himself. And as a result of that, he made decisions better. His relationships flourished. He navigated life differently. He handled conflict better. Because when we're walking closely with Jesus, he continually transforms us. But after about a year, something changed. You see, by that time, Bob had learned the essential truths of Christianity, and he'd become familiar with the Bible, and, and he'd learned how to follow its wisdom. And at that point, he started to act as if the life of faith was rather routine. He went into what I call spiritual cruise control. He still went to church. He still attended his small group. He still read his Bible from time to time. But what we saw was a life where he had stopped flourishing. The longer that he continued in cruise control, the more reasons he found not to be in church, not to read his Bible, to skip his small group meeting. Praying became less and less important. He still was a believer, but his faith in Jesus and following Jesus actively day by day no longer was a priority. And he admitted to me that he found the Christian life to be rather humdrum. That sense of excitement and expectation that he originally had was gone. And the sense of spiritual richness was absent from his life. And Bob was missing out on the best that God had for him. I've encountered a number of Christians like Bob over the years. These are men and women who still believe they would never ever turn their back on Jesus, but, but they just don't seem to find much joy in the Christian life. These are men and women who have stopped flourishing and they're living on spiritual cruise control. Maybe you're in that place right now or maybe you know someone who is. And if that's the case, then it would be great to find a way to regain spiritual momentum. Or maybe you're doing fine, but you don't ever want that to happen to yourself. So it would be great to take some steps to prevent it from happening. So dealing with the issue of spiritual cruise control or wanting to prevent that, I think that pretty much covers all of us. 
And thankfully, the Bible passage that we're about to read meets both those needs. The Apostle Paul, as we're going to see, offers us an approach to prayer that can be both a cure and a prevention for going into spiritual cruise control. Because what he shows us is how to pray for Christians to flourish. So let's take a look at the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, starting in verse 15. This is Paul writing to believers living in the ancient cities of Ephesus, and he says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you, again, this is the church, may give you, the church, the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe." according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, as I read that, here's something important to remember. We talked about this last week. The Apostle Paul does not sit at a desk and craft his letters. He dictates them, and the result often is what I just read. You notice it's kind of one long run-on sentence mostly? Well, guess what? In the original Greek, it's even worse. The whole thing is one long run-on sentence. There's no periods anywhere. But see, this tells us that as Paul's dictating, he sees all of these ideas as deeply interconnected. All of the things that he says here, they're aspects of God's spiritual riches. Riches that help us to flourish. And now as Paul writes this to the Ephesians, we need to remember another key point. He's under house arrest in Rome. He's under arrest for the crime of preaching about Jesus. Even though he's confined, he regularly receives messengers and visitors. He exchanges correspondence. And as a result, he knows what's going on in the church at Ephesus. And so he learns that the believers there are actively living out their faith. They consistently are demonstrating Jesus-like love to each other. So these Christians are flourishing. Yet even healthy churches full of healthy believers still need prayer if they want to continue to flourish and not go into spiritual cruise control. And so for the church at Ephesus, Paul's approach to prayer is one of prevention rather than cure. Now as you may know, Paul sometimes in his letters actually writes out literal prayers, and we're going to see that later in Ephesians. But in this case, Paul isn't praying. He's doing something different. He's telling the Ephesians, when I pray for you, this is how I pray. I think it's tremendously powerful 
to be on the receiving end of those kinds of comments. Think about all the times that we say to someone, I'll pray for you. Now, now it's wonderful to hear those words from another believer, yet we can enhance that if we also say how we're going to pray, to let them know the content of our prayers. For for example, suppose I go to Brad, and I say, Brad, I am really struggling with a major league decision in my life right now, and I literally don't know what to do. And if Brad says, oh, Bruce, I'll pray for you, I would love that. That would mean so much to me because I know he's sincere and he will pray. But what if Brad said something like this? Bruce, I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit will give you wisdom from heaven and that he'll give you discernment so that you can unravel your confusion and make the decision exactly as God wants you to make it. Oh, wow, that would be so powerful. And that would also help me direct my own prayers. How about, how about if, if I went to, went to Rob and said, Rob, I am really struggling right now with a, with a deep urge to give into a temptation, and oh, brother, I need you to pray for me. And how about if Rob said, Bruce, I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit gives you a spirit of self-control so you can reject that temptation and walk away from it. Oh my goodness, that would be so, so encouraging and so powerful and that would strengthen me so much. Saying, I'll pray for you, is a good thing to do and I hope we never stop doing it. But when we can, we can add to that. And we can tell brothers and sisters in the faith how we're going to pray for them. And that's even more enriching. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul does here for his brothers and sisters in the church in Ephesus. Now, as often is the case with Paul, when he gives us these long, run-on sentences like he does here, we wind up with a paragraph that is lavishly loaded with insights. For our purposes this morning, though, I think there's three things that God wants us to embrace. Three things that he wants you and I, as the church, to incorporate into our own expressions of prayer. And here's the first one. The first thing to know is that Paul is offering a spiritually focused prayer. This entire prayer is spiritually focused. Now now think about that. Paul does tell them his content, but what if the content was very general? What if Paul simply said to the Ephesians, oh, I'm praying for you to flourish. How might they understand that? Well, they might think in terms of money or possessions or experiences or health. I I have no doubt that Paul is concerned for their physical well-being Yet in this prayer, he eliminates any potential for misunderstanding and he makes his priorities clear by focusing exclusively on spiritual matters. And why does he do that? It's because our spiritual condition is the root of a rich and vibrant life. True flourishing occurs when God touches our souls and continually renews us from the inside out. And when we flourish spiritually, 
then we can keep the rest of life in proper perspective. And yet, let's be honest, so much of what you and I pray about are the physical and material aspects of life. Jobs and finances, illness, relocations, relational conflicts. Why do we pray about those things? We pray about them because they're important. They're important to us. And yes, they are important to God. And we pray about them because we believe that prayer makes a difference or we wouldn't waste our time praying. And many of us have seen profound and even miraculous answers to such prayers, haven't we? Because prayer makes a difference. So those kinds of prayers about the physical and material aspects of life, they are important and they are valuable. But what we see here is another way to pray as well. And I find myself asking, how often do you and I offer spiritually focused prayers like the one Paul describes here? And I imagine the answer is, not very often. I have to tell you that in recent years, the Spirit of God has really been working on me about the content of my prayers. And he's not telling me to stop praying about the physical aspects of life. What he's telling me is, Bruce, enlarge your prayer kit. Add some more tools to your prayer kit. And he's telling me to more consistently reach into that toolkit and to offer rich, lavish spiritually focused prayers as Paul does here. And here's why this is so important. God has convinced me that the lack of spiritually focused prayers is a huge contributing factor to the problem of living on spiritual cruise control. You see, if we're not actively praying for ourselves and others to spiritually flourish, then it's increasingly easy for us to spiritually dry up. As I look back on the experience of my doormate Bob, I see this playing a huge role in his transition from being spiritually vibrant to being spiritually complacent and even spiritually stagnant. You see, neither Bob nor anyone else was consistently praying for him to spiritually flourish. And I think this is a huge deficiency in our approach to prayer. So this is the first thing I believe God wants us to catch in this marvelous Bible passage. We can enrich our prayer life by offering on a consistent basis spiritually focused prayers. Praying for ourselves and praying for others to richly flourish. Now the second thing to notice is that this is not a prayer for the Ephesians to simply grow in their cognitive knowledge of God. It's a prayer for revelation. That's point number two. A prayer for revelation. And here's where the essence of this comes from. Here's a basic question. Does the human heart have eyes? Obviously not. 
Paul was living in the first century. They didn't know nearly as much as we know about human anatomy, but I'm sure Paul knew that the human heart doesn't have eyes. Yet listen again to what he writes in verses 17 and 18. That God may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Clearly, Paul is speaking metaphorically. And since he's writing to believers steeped in Greek culture, he uses this metaphor deliberately based on what it would mean to his readers. And guess what? To the ancient Greeks, the heart was the center, not just of emotions, but the center of the soul. Hmm. The center of the soul. That's what the heart represents. And so think what what Paul is praying for here. He's saying, I'm praying that you would see God more clearly with your emotions. That may sound a little weird, but that's what he's saying. In other words, he's saying, don't limit yourself to understanding God only with your mind, but you can understand God at the depth of your your feelings. And you can also understand God more clearly from the depths of your soul. And as I say that, I have to tell you, I don't fully understand even what that means. You see, we can't put it into words which means we can't grasp it solely through our own brain power. We understand it in some mysterious way at a deeper level as God unleashes within us the Holy Spirit, the Spirit who is the Spirit of wisdom and revelation. And he helps us know Jesus and the richness of the life of faith in ways beyond what we can glean simply through Bible study. And brothers and sisters, I think this is key for getting ourselves out of spiritual cruise control or preventing ourselves from ever falling into cruise control. Now we're Bible-believing Christians and we deeply value the Bible as we should. It's vital for us to know the Scriptures because they are the repository of God's truth for us. And yet we cannot make the pursuit of Bible knowledge alone the hallmark of spirituality. Unless we ask God to give us his spirit of revelation, we will not be able to embrace his truth at the level of the heart, at the level of the emotions and the soul. That deeper level where true and lasting transformation takes place. Here's a couple of examples to just drive home what I'm talking about. I like to keep myself informed, and so as I study the scriptures, I regularly read Bible scholars and their commentaries from a wide variety of perspectives. Periodically, I run across men and women, great Bible scholars who know the scriptures far better than I do but it's very evident that they don't have an ounce of faith in Jesus. These are people who know the book incredibly well, but the eyes of their hearts have not been enlightened. They've not invited God to give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation that transforms human beings at that deep level of the soul. 
And as I read these knowledgeable, faithless descriptions of the scriptures, it tells me that Bible knowledge without spiritual revelation is not enough for living as a follower of Jesus. Here's another example. Some of you will remember Pastor Gabe who visited us here at TCC a couple of times last year. Gabe is working with the homeless in West Eugene in a very innovative and different sort of ministry. And Gabe regularly encounters people who are walking and talking Bible encyclopedias. But they're homeless due to self-inflicted wounds. And these are men and women who grew up in the church and they learned the Bible intimately. Yet knowledge alone was not enough to keep their faith alive. Knowledge alone did not prevent them from yielding to drugs or alcohol or other destructive vices and they wound up on the streets. Bible knowledge without spiritual revelation isn't enough for living by faith in Jesus. And so when you and I follow Paul's example and we offer spiritually focused prayers, let's ask God to drench us and drench others with the spirit of wisdom and revelation to lavishly pour out his spirit on his church so we will be transformed not just in our minds but also in our emotions and in our souls. Let's ask God to enlighten eyes of our hearts because that's where the deepest transformation takes place and it results in transformation that will last it results in faithful people who can hold on to Jesus and never ever let go now I want to make one side point here and it's one that I think is absolutely fascinating and incredibly important and we find it in verse 18. Paul wants us to know, quote, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. I mean, think about that. His glorious inheritance in the saints, in the people of God. I, I've read that so many times, and it's only recently that I actually caught what Paul is saying. He's not talking about anything that we inherit from God. He's talking about the fact that we, the church of Jesus Christ, are God's inheritance. And we are called a rich and glorious inheritance for God. And I find myself saying, really? Us? This ragtag band of imperfect people who sin a lot and often do really stupid things? And the answer is yes, yes, yes. We are God's rich and glorious inheritance. And that is not a cause for gloating, brothers and sisters. That is a cause for grateful humility. It is unbelievable when we realize that the God of heaven and earth views us as incredibly value, as incredibly precious, and that's why Jesus came to earth and died for us. And after we die, God is wait, joyfully waiting to welcome us into our eternal home. Because we 
are his rich and glorious inheritance. Why would anyone ever want to walk away from that? It is mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling to live within the reality of that. And it's also mind-boggling to think about that in light of human death. We are not supposed to hasten death, but neither should we fear it. The Heavenly Father doesn't want us feeling anxious about that moment when we're going to close our eyes and draw our last breath. But I find many Christians who do fear death. And here's why I think that happens. I think it's because we haven't let the spirit of wisdom and revelation see more clearly with the eyes of our heart. And when that happens and when God transforms us at that deeper level, it does change our perspective on life. It changes our perspective on death and it enables us to live with a vibrant, joyful hope every day in this life and to look forward with joy to the life to come. We get to flourish now and forever because we are God's rich and glorious inheritance. Oh, what riches God lavishes on us. So as Paul describes here this prayer for flourishing, he brings in some powerful elements that shape his prayer, and there's one more that's incredibly important. This is the third thing. As he prays for the Ephesians, he acknowledges and embraces the mighty power of God. This is a prayer that is embracing God's power. And what we see is that starting in verse 19 and following to the end of the passage, Paul highlights God's power from three different perspectives. There's the power of of resurrection, which reminds us that we are children of the God who conquered death when he brought Jesus back to life. Our God restored life to a dead body. That's power, the power of resurrection. Then there's the power of ascension. We know that 40 days after Jesus' resurrection, God the Father bodily took Jesus fully alive from the earth back to heaven where Jesus now resides. He's living there as Paul talks about. The power of ascension is power. Someone that went to heaven without dying, Jesus taken bodily, restored to heaven. Oh, is that power. And then there's the power of dominion. Jesus, the Son of God, our Lord and Savior, is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. That is the position of authority and lordship. And Jesus is over all things, and everything in this world is under his feet. Everything. That's power. And Paul embraces that. And it shapes the way he prays. Because as he prays for the Ephesians to spiritually flourish, he does so with boldness. And he does it boldly because of the power of the God to whom he prays. Paul is confident that the Ephesians can spiritually flourish. 
because of God's power working on their behalf. And he is confident that the Ephesians will spiritually flourish as God's resurrection, ascension, and dominion power envelops them and strengthens them and helps them to keep living the adventure of faith each and every day. When I see how Paul prays here, I realize that my own prayers far too often are rather anemic. And that's because I don't often enough embrace the power of God. For the power of God to be unleashed in the life of the person for whom I'm praying. And it's important to understand that when we pray as Paul does, we're not claiming Paul's power, excuse me, we're not claiming God's power in order to get our own way. We're not claiming God's power in order to impose our own preferences on other people. When we pray as Paul does, we're asking God to powerfully work in the lives of our brothers and sisters in faith so they will spiritually flourish. And when they flourish, oh, their lives will be so, so rich. And as God answers these spiritual prayers, and as followers of Jesus richly flourish, then we're not going to find ourselves living on spiritual cruise control. But every day will be part of that ongoing rich adventure of faith. There's one final thing we need to remember here. As we saw last week, God's get-rich plan is for His church. We get to be drenched with the lavish blessings of God because we are part of His covenant people. And so while we certainly can pray like this for ourselves, I think the best way to follow Paul's example is to offer spiritually focused prayers for the church. And I find myself wondering, how might our church flourish if we took these principles to heart and consistently offered them in prayer? And so I want to close today by giving you an example of how to do just that. I'm going to pray that God will help us, Thurston Christian Church, to flourish to experience the lavish riches of God so that we never ever wind up on spiritual cruise control. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, I am so thankful that we, the members of TCC, have faith in Jesus and I'm thankful that we have a true love for one another. And because of our faith, Father, I ask you to drench us with the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Oh, Lord, please open the eyes of our hearts that we might see you more clearly in every aspect of our being. May we see you and know you in our minds, but also may we see you and know you in levels that we can't even fully understand and explain at the level of our emotions and our souls. 
Father, because you raised Jesus from the dead and you restored him to heaven, we know that you have the power to transform reality. And so we humbly ask that your power would be at work in our lives to continually transform us from the inside out. And as you change us, may we trust you more and more, not only in this life, but with rich and joyful hope for the life to come. I pray that we would never fall into spiritual cruise control, but to revel each day in the glorious riches that you lavish on us. The riches of being your children, the riches of living by faith in Jesus, the riches of experiencing the very best that you have for us. What a blessing. What an adventure. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to be your rich and glorious inheritance. May we embrace the reality of that each and every day. And we pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.